If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade, and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hey there, thanks for joining us on episode 29 of Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni, and each week we explore the games and the news making the rounds. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Scott and Mitch. Hey. hey. And making the live video stream work is our video producer, James. Also joining us in the studio today is Colton Underwater, developer of the upcoming Super Salmon Migration and Arbalist 3035. Uh, Colton, thanks for jump- jumping in today. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem at all. Yeah, we'll also be talking about when large retails expand into game publishing and uh, some of the consequences about one company in particular um, expanding their control. Finally, we'll talk about work-life balance when making games. One outspoken developer has been getting everyone's hackles up. We'll jump into that whole debate very soon. Let's jump in. You're listening to Pixel Sift. <laughs> Colton Underwater is a Perth game developer from Beartooth Studios and currently working on the mobile game Super Salmon Migration. For people who are listening at home, Colton, how would you describe Super Salmon Migration? Uh, we've been calling it an endless swimmer recently. So, you know, typical endless runner genre, except you're a fish, so you're swimming up a river. And yeah, so that's pretty much all there is to it. Dodging obstacles, dodging obstacles collecting flies and bugs and things like that, and buying costumes, and that's game, yeah. Why do you think it is that like so many of these endless runners and endless sort of gameplay loopy sort of things have kind of come into, I guess, come into fashion now? Um, it's just, well, it's a surefire way to get retention uh, from your consumer base, really, to kind of keep them involved in the game. I mean, obviously, the whole concept behind the endless runner is that you can go endlessly. And yeah, that's the easiest way to kind of keep people playing. So, And what do you do to kind of mix it up enough so that people are kind of always working towards something? Or, or what, what's the... Uh... Uh, offering incentives for running further or swimming further in this case, you know, so those are the things like costumes and stuff like that. That's what that comes into play. Or you could even get like level unlocks and things like that. So yeah, well, that's it. Just rewarding you know, the consumer for going further in your game to keep them, you know, wanting to push themselves. Also, having scoring and stuff like that creates that whole competitive concept between them and other people that might be playing the game as well. You can have, like, leaderboards. Yeah, and... exactly. Yeah. When you're um, making a game like this, uh, have you thought about how it's actually going to be released? Are you going to have it as a free game with paid content, or are you going to release it as a paid game? What sort of things were you kind of... Yeah, we did think about this quite a bit, and when thinking about this sort of thing, we kind of... Well, me personally, I wanted to kind of take into consideration what kind of studio I would be. And I wouldn't necessarily call myself a mobile game developer. You know, my passion is in indie games and stuff like that. So when it came to pricing this game, 
uh, it would be very easy to assume it would be things a free game with microtransactions because we have like tiered costumes and things like that. But um, I prefer to go through the option just all that premium because I find that way the connection between the studio and the consumer base is a lot more intimate if you just stick to premium games. And it's looked at less of a mobile app or a mobile game and more like an indie game that just happens to be on the mobile platform using that pricing model as well. So I mean, what... Oh, is, is that a legitimate concern? Like your indie game developers now are afraid of falling into the mobile genre and they just become a mobile developer just based on the fact that most of those games can be run on mobile. Yeah, well, it's a legitimate concern for me in my studio, I suppose. I don't, I'm not sure like all around what it would be, you know, because obviously a studio needs to sustain itself and then you've got to take these things into consideration as well. But um, yeah, for just on a personal level, like for me, it is a very important thing to keep in mind. So, so does it just make sense for a game like Super Sam Migration to be mobile, but that's not going to be the thing that you guys are going to be doing or yeah, is it like yeah. is this a direction that you kind of are finding interesting at the moment well yeah exactly i mean the main purpose of it was for me to cut my teeth on the mobile games you know and kind of explore and see what that whole development process was like because uh, i never made a mobile game before so you know it started off as a learning experience for me and then once when that kind of picked up uh kind of grew grew on its own but yeah for sure i definitely want to focus more on the you know your typical indie game space and what that sort of thing would look like so yeah so i guess what are some of the big things you have learned from from moving into this mobile game sort of um i guess uh technical side you know you got your optimization and stuff like that like you kind of have to keep that in mind when developing like all the way from the beginning concept to art style and things like that you got to keep space in mind uh, the volatility of the mobile market i mean <laughs> it's a whole different beast to wrestle with when it comes to that you know um, just getting noticed, a lot of it, you can do all the marketing you want, but a lot of it depends on, you know, just getting the right people to pick up on it and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, so those two are the biggest things that I've learned. And then, uh, I guess, yeah, well, I'll just go with that. <laughs> You've still got a bit of time before the yeah, game exactly. kind of comes out. So yeah. you'll guess you'll see how it goes Yeah, exactly. as, you, as you're going through. Um, I guess one of the main things about uh, Super Ten Migration that I noticed is it's sort of like a one-touch, almost like one-button-style mm. gameplay. What do you have to do when you're trying to make a game fun for just one button? Like, what are some of the things that you think about when you... Um, it would just, yeah, just creating an effective feedback loop. So ensuring that the consumer is getting enough stimulant from that one button. So things like our art style gets taken into account for that. Things like the fish's movement, so how it flows and things like that. So it's you know, when you're touching the screen for such an input that it's a satisfying touch, you know, and it feels good to just do that, just tap the screen or hold your button down. So, yeah. You mentioned the art style as well, and both uh, Super Sound Migration and Arbalest yeah. have really sort of striking art styles. How did you kind of end up in those directions or what was kind of the design decisions that you made that ended up with the games that look the way they do? Um, well, both games kind of, they took their different paths going on um, art styles. Arbalist was uh, actually hired out a concept artist and I just told her, look, give me 10 different screenshots, you know, of different art styles and stuff like that. And I kind of mishmashed them all together and then I found one that worked. So that was really good. And then this one, I was actually a children's book that I was reading, and I really, really loved the illustration style of it. Uh, Emily Winters is the illustrator of that. You can go look her up. And it kind of inspired me, and I kind of based it around that sort of stuff. So, yeah. And you've also got, for all the costumes and stuff, you've got other different types of things. I think there's a robotic, like, yeah. Terminator-style salmon and stuff. How do you, um, I guess, mesh these different art styles together to kind of kind of work? Or, or you know, when you're designing new uh, sort of outfits for the salmon, I guess, yeah. how, how do you, what do you think about when you're making those? 
Um, yeah, so we just, at the moment, the way that I picked the costumes, we just got a big list, like a huge list of costumes, like it's like 100 or so, and then I just like, you know, firstly look at all the ideas, I'm like, okay, this one would work, this one would work, this wouldn't work, and I grab them, draw them up and stuff like that, and it's just a matter of tweaking, comparing it to the original fish, the template model, and kind of just tweaking it from there, and then kind of making sure, you know, color palette's right and stuff like that, and that it all fits in right, so it's just a matter of reiterating on costume design and stuff like that, so that's what it is. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned the force feedback earlier. Is, yeah. is it like so? I guess a lot of games now, they seem to lack that almost, and hmm. the good ones really do. I mean, um, was that definitely like how, how did you manage to make that one of the core elements of your game? Uh, one of our big things, what we did, because there's a team of three people that are making this, so we had a gameplay program, two programmers, um, a gameplay programmer and someone who's programming everything else essentially. And the gameplay programmer, that was his one task. It's like, look, we got this one function doing and we need you to make this feel as good as possible. And just, you know, dedicating time to it, I guess that would be our main thing. And that's how we kind of got it to work. Um, sorry. Um, so I guess phones have like a rumble function. Would you yeah. like have consider like using that as well? No, not really. I mean, rumble functions like those sorts of things. Like, you've got to cons take into consideration the battery life of the phone and things like right. that as well. Like, we want to kind of make this game as simple as possible. So things like online features and, you know, all those peripheral functions we're kind of um, avoiding. Right. Yeah. So the game is still in its alpha phase mm. in the current download, uh, but seems quite polished and, you know, ready to launch almost. Yep. Uh, is there much more content due for the full release? Yeah, uh, a lot more costumes, you know, that's a big thing. And then we got two extra levels as well that we're putting in as well with all their own obstacles and things like that too. So. And when is the final due date for this? Uh, we're looking at mid-March at the moment, yeah. Exciting stuff. Yeah. Great. Well, you can jump on over to bear-tooth.com if you want to check out uh, all the updates and everything that Colton and the team are putting together for Super Salmon Migration. Colton, we'll get you to stick around and we'll have a chat about some of the other topics we've got on today. And uh, let's jump into some of those now. You're listening to Pixelsift. Or you might be watching Pixelsift on Twitch. Pixelsift. Yeah, so games publishing has become big business, and with the amount of money moving through these organizations, it's very tempting for large companies to try and break into the market. Um, the latest group uh, to actually fully commit to this now is uh, GameStop, and these are the American guys, and they're in charge of EB Games here in Australia. Which is one of the biggest, I guess, dedicated games retailers now. We don't really have anyone Big else. as to say, I can't think of another one. No, well, Game yeah. was the only other one that used to be around that was just a dedicated yeah. game shop, and then they've pretty much gone under now. They don't exist in Australia anymore. I think they're a little bit left in the UK. Wait, what was that one? Game? Just Game. Just Game, I yeah. never even... Yeah, they had all the... <laughs> never even noticed. But yeah, like, they're the one major retailer, other than buying games in shops yeah. that would sell a bunch of different things. This is the only kind of dedicated... And look, we've, t we've touched on this before, uh, the value, I guess, of this kind of, um, you know, tangible retail store for, you know, uh, secondhand games and whatever else. It's just, it's a really good thing for the community to have. But obviously, as far as with the digital world, things are going towards that digital delivery system. I think that's what, that's what's most interesting about these, like this move is the fact that they are completely open to the digital aspect of, um, of games publishing. And traditionally, retailers have 
moved away from it and even so far as to not stock one of the models of ps vita because it didn't take umds anymore it was like completely online and they wouldn't they didn't want to stock it because where they make their money is not necessarily on hardware but it's games and peripherals so now they seem to be i guess wanting to break into that themselves well i think it's just that for them it's like understanding an admission that you know to success uh, to be successful they have to move into some kind of digital release circuit you know uh, a la valve or whatever you know that their success you know, on its own is enough to encourage anybody to jump into it i mean i don't feel that they really want to li- give up their retail kind of uh prowess but doing it on its own is just not kind of realistic anymore there's this term basically in economics called vertical integration Uh and that's where you control every level of production of something so for example you know normally you'd have people making games and then you would buy them off a distributor or a publisher and then sell them in your shop but if you are the distributor and the publisher then you own that there and you don't have to have their cut on top you just absorb more of it into your into your fee structure, basically. I didn't know you were such a capitalist. Jeremy. Oh, look, uh, <laughs> you know, that's that, that's how you would do it, basically. Yeah, this is the, this right. is the move to what they're right. doing. You um, the show, man. <laughs> <laughs> this, this multi-million dollar show. Yeah, yeah. Um, Monopoly. The, the, like, the GameStop in the States um, has actually an online shop, shop front, and I'm pretty sure that would have one here as well. Um, so being able to produce content that is directly for your thing, and, you know, they already have a lot of deals. They have a lot of market power already, in that they've got exclusive DLC and pre-order bonuses that that are only through them. And then if they've got publishing their own games in-house, the thing that I'm concerned about is that maybe you may not be able to buy... That is the main concern. Yeah, you may not be able to buy their published games anywhere other than their shop. You're being echoed quite a bit in the community as well, actually, Johnny. We haven't read that anywhere yet, though. That is... I don't know. I haven't. Well, the thing is... Okay, so let's have a look at another one. Let's have a look at Steam, for example. And Steam has its own games, which it publishes, and it's theirs, like, for example, Portal and Left 4 Dead and all that. And they still, you know, sell those on other platforms, and they still publish other games. So they're a well. really good example of people that have done it well, and it's been it's, uh, received really well, and it's been incredibly successful. I mean... Well, I guess the main thing... So, you know, this is one of the big, big rock box retailers, and it, I'm just concerned that when you have got something like this, which is a monopoly on a particular thing. I mean, to say that they haven't said that they're obviously going to only sell um, their games on there, but some of the big names on there are like Insomniac, which, you know, just released a new Ratchet and, Ratchet and Clank game. Maybe it'll be in the future you, the only place you could physically go to buy that or even online to buy that would be through their channel. Well, and there's no, they, you know, there's no cost pressure on them to, to give that, a reasonable price. That's to. not good for them as yeah. in the public eye as a publisher, especially just starting up as well. Um, it, it seems that like um, that kind of thing that you just talk about like releasing something on one platform only it seems to be going away actually yeah like um for example titanfall 2 is a big one that was exclusively xbox and that moved a lot of xbox ones titanfall yeah but it's not i'm not talking about like one platform i'm talking about one shop yeah that's true you know what i mean like they could be on everything say for example you pick up you know ratchet and clank and that's on everything but like i'm talking about the monetary value like even though you're talking about one shop but it's just limiting sales avenues People just traditionally don't really do that anymore. Yeah, but if you've got a high-profile game that people want to buy and they can only so. buy it one place and you set the price of it because you're the publisher, you just I, I, never I'm increase thinking, the price. With GameStop's like, you know, sales you know, dropping pretty dramatically at, at the moment and that's why they're jumping into this digital world, I can't feel them wanting to limit their, you know, their, their reach, I guess, as a yeah. publisher because that's only what it's going to do. 
Col- and, you know, the whole idea behind yeah. it is offering something unique uh, other than retail. You know, that's going to help their bottom line regardless. Yeah. Colton, what do you think about the whole publishing? Yeah, well, from what I'm hearing, like, about your concern is that you're concerned that they're going to take on Steam, essentially. Well, I'm just... I. I I just, just don't want to cons- make another account. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I don't. It's not that I don't want. To yeah. it's not that I don't want. Like I personally, yeah. I'm someone who believes in competition in these yeah. sort of things, and I think that works out the best for the consumer when there's lots of different places that you can buy the same thing, and people have to offer better service or better pricing in order to do that. And I think for some games, there could be well, if they're publishing their own stuff in house, there's a risk that they could be, you know, they're the only place to get this game. Yeah, and yeah. you just got to suck it up if they're giving you a bad deal. I no, understand. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. I see what you're saying there. And, like, on the flip side, you know, you brought the example of games moving consoles and stuff like that. Like, the exclusivity in consoles um, is a lot more detrimental because, you know, buying a new console for a game is a much bigger deal than going to a different marketplace. But on the other side, like, going up against Steam is just not... Like, I don't see it as a good idea anytime soon. Like, even if you offer a better service, a better, you know, price models and stuff like that, um, you just won't get the recognition because a lot of games, a lot of times people become aware of games now in the digital marketplace because uh, it's through Steam itself as well. So from straight up marketing side perspective as well, uh, yeah, keeping it away from a, something like a Steam store, unless if you're a household name like EA would do with something like The Sims, then you wouldn't be able to you know, get any reach at all. The interesting thing, I think, about the publisher um, relationship with developers when they're putting the games out there, they have a lot of control about where that game is distributed mm. as well. So, for example, if you took up a publishing deal with a particular publisher and they said, you know, yes, we'll, we'll get your thing to market, don't worry about that, you just make the best game you can, they may, made decisions saying, uh, you know, they may. If you're in a position where you're a small developer and this is the first time you've been published, you may not have the clout to kind of argue against yeah. them only having it on one shop front. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's... Uh, I don't know. It could be we're just kind of getting worried about nothing, and this is going to be no problem. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. we're, we're gonna this episode of Pixel Stuff just gonna be like, oh yeah, they complained about that thing. That's not gonna. That yeah, yeah. Us well, yeah. I mean, there is obviously something to worry about of GameStop making it some kind of exclusive thing where you know you only have to go through them to get whatever titles they're now going to be in charge of because of their you know uh, studios that they're gonna whatever. Yeah. Um, but we don't know anything. They could become a really good trusted company that do everything great and you know become a steam 2.0 kind of thing you know a lot of the concerns that we're kind of yeah holding out here is people said this a lot about the ea's origin um Uh when it came out ea's got a bad history and ea doesn't have a great history of this sort of stuff and they also restricted their sales of their online purchasing for games like um Battlefront, I'm pretty sure you can only buy through that digitally on Origin. You can also only get the recent Battlefields on there, and they're not available on Steam at all. But they've taken a, like, their opposite to that is they've actually been quite aggressive with their discounts and things like that. So they're trying to mirror the whole Steam model. Mm. So they're getting people in that way. But, you know, if they chose not to do that, if you wanted to buy it digitally, because a lot of people, you buy a computer now, you don't have a CD drive. You know, you can't basically put it in there. You have to get it through one place and they're the only place selling it. Then you're kind of stuck. Otherwise, it's, it's interesting that they're not doing anything to try and make, they're not making moves to try and protect maybe the secondhand market. Well, that's where they used to make a huge that, that, amount that of their money That seems like where they make most of their money now, the secondhand market, because you just and buy these games off people. But and that would go yeah. hand in hand with um, going digital though, yeah, as well. Yeah, that's true, so. yeah. Maybe they could offer, maybe that's one thing they might offer is that actually you can trade your, your key in whatever and yeah. we'll resell it <laughs> and on to someone else and then you get a, a you trading get value and then credit like that i know there's a lot of people who you know will buy steam games and never play them mm. and mm. you probably be like yeah, well, actually want... i'm actually never going to play this game i might be good to trade it in yeah. 
and then and there's there's ways that they've set this up in the EU as well that you can sell digital goods again yeah. um, to onto third parties. So you know it does technically. It's not. It's technically feasible. We can I, totally think it was like, I know people that have big Steam libraries. These things. One thing I'm interested them. to see how they tackle uh, is the digital kind of like uh, uh, the aging of games kind of thing, and when they become less uh, popular and therefore less pricey. You know, as far uh, digital games generally don't lose their price, which is kind of you know they tend to stick around. Yeah, yeah look, it's going to be. Issue. Yeah, it's very a very interesting sort of topic. I think we'll you know at the moment we're kind of speculating on the yeah. the worst that could happen from it. We, we may be pleasantly surprised, so we'll be keeping an eye on that and uh, see what happens in say six months time, shall we? Come back to this. We're going to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, be I reckon we will be <laughs> to be honest. But you know, you got to <laughs> do the gloom it. All right, let's jump into our next topic. Visit us on pixelsift.com.au. Now, crunch time is something people working in high-pressure situations requiring deliverables can understand easily, but the rest of us may not realise how stressful a time it can be, especially when you're not being rewarded properly for the job you're doing. Over the last month, there has been online back and forth between some of the gaming industry discussing the need and lack of support for a general fair go for these workers, giving it their most to supply us with the best they can. It's led some to some interesting articles and differing opinions, that's for sure. Um, thoughts on the current goings-on? So, Kate Edwards yes. um, did a, who's from the International Game Developers Association, did a survey of all their members, basically, to kind of find out what the, uh, the feeling of, of people who make games for a living, what's their... What's their opinion? What's their opinion? Yeah. And they, 37% of their members said that there was no compensation, financial, time off, time in lieu, anything... For this crunch time, uh, basically, for crunching at the end of a, a game development process, where you chuck in so much time to, um, you know, make a game, and they, yeah, basically, this, this was a concern. That's forty percent of people. So, so this, this is something that is this like is this a new concept? Like this is uh, nothing this new. Ex- um, it's definitely not new. No. Like this is. Yeah. I, I read articles and conversations about this going back, you know, ten years or so. There was actually. Conversations about the morality and necessity of crunch uh, going back to 2004 when the game designer Aaron Hoffman wrote about an expose about the practices at video game publisher EA. EA. Uh, So, you know, this goes back a while and people like Electronic Arts and other publishers with not the best rep have probably been pushing this quite hard for a while now. What I meant by that is actually, is this exclusive to video games? No, I don't think so. How about other industries? Like I said, well, I used to work as a structural draftsman, and as a building gets closer to the point where you know it's it's ended, you you crunch time. You're doing sixty plus hours a week, but I was getting paid for that, and I never would have done it if I hadn't been. I mean, it's a job, regardless of it being for the love of the art or whatever um, that comes with being in the video game industry. It's still a job. Like a lot of these people aren't the creators or entrepreneurs in charge of this. They're just, you know, a, a, a person working at a desk. So Alex St. John, he's a outspoken game developer. Uh, he came out and basically oh, said that game development, it's not a job. It's, uh, it's an art. It's an art. Yeah, okay. And that people have to sort of take this entrepreneurial thing where they're chucking in all this time. He, but for a lot of people in these big companies, that, that is what it is. You know, you aren't going to get a, a greater share cut basically for a big company like EA if you chuck in more time if you're in a small indie development thing like like for example Beartooth Studios the more time you put into it the more you're going to get out of it yeah but you're also you're a little bit closer to it there and you have a more invested interest I feel like your team would be exactly that a little bit more of a close team wanting to crunch kind of thing for everybody rather than just one of the numbers oh yeah exactly for sure it's a completely different work dynamic yeah um, compared to being in a bigger studio definitely like 
it's at my hobby as well as my job and you know differentiating art from your job is a ridiculous concept i reckon like doing art doing art for a job is something that you do like that's what artists do that's what writers do as well as game developers i think it also devalues art as well it kind of says that art has to only be for the purpose of being something artistic it can't be something to make you money but it's this whole like idea of artists being you know the struggling poor people kind of thing you know Mm, uh, starving artist yeah it it does exactly it does nothing to go against that which is a bit of a problem he said uh alex st john one of the quotes that i really like well didn't like, but it was One a of the gem. Caught in your yeah, mind. yeah. It was um, don't be in the game industry if you can't love all eighty hours, like a week of it. You're taking a job from somebody who would really value it. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where to start. With I, how I don't I feel think about that. demanding, demanding compensation, like uh, appropriate compensation, such as pay. I don't think that's not loving. It. <laughs> There's nothing I, wrong with that. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, it is work. In no, I mean, one, no other industry would people yeah. be like expected to do 80 hours without getting paid, you know, their 80 hours, or at least close to it, you know. I just feel like he's being a bit ridiculous. And also, kind of talking about the initial article, which was by Dean Takahashi, and kind of saying he's a little bit of a like, crybaby, maybe, which I, which I disagree with. There, look, it, especially in media creation, for example, if you've got a deadline or you've got to write up your script before your episode comes along, there is going to be this crunch where everyone's jumping in there and yeah. you've got things that need to meet, meet that thing. But, you know, there is a there's a there is a work-life balance that people need to maintain because it's there is a burnout. And they said, I've read a study earlier in the week where they said that people actually, after doing these long crunches for games like um, from the 90s era, actually suffered brain damage because of the lack of sleep and, and mental toll and physical toll as well. And to say that you just got to sort of, you know, knuckle up and do it basically to, uh, you know, make your thing is, I don't know. It's a bit big ask. Like Rami uh, Ismail said uh, with his response to um, Alex St. John's article, he said, structural crunch is bad and burning out is real. Like this does happen and people can only take so much of being pushed to their limits. Just on so many levels, I'm kind of against that whole concept, you know, like from, you know, as a personal level, like I said, you know, running my own indie studio, you know, hobby developing, like we crunch and stuff like that all the time. But you got to have an awareness that your best creativity, like your best work outputting is when everything's working in your brain, like when you're firing on all cylinders. So even from a productive standpoint, it's just a really unhealthy attitude to have. And to have this whole idea that I want to pursue my passion, I want to, you know, go out and make games. Okay, but I need to sacrifice pretty much all my social life and I'm going to ruin my family doing it. But this is a, and saying that's, that's just the price you pay for this sort of work. It's, but it's like, Pushing on violating basic human rights, like that's what I reckon. I mean, yeah. Alex St. John, you know, he has a history of just saying the most disgusting. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. About no, no, this. please go, go for it. Dude. He has a history of saying the most disgusting things, yeah. like from things like we should hire more disabled workers because we can overwork them and won't complain about it. Like he puts his stuff on record. <laughs> he seems to be a little bit twisted from what the rest of the video game industry is really kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, and he almost prides himself on these like sociopathic attitudes that he has towards other people and like towards having a good work work ethic as well so like a journalistic shock job yeah yeah exactly mm. yeah well that's he's getting a lot of attention for this well, he so is. who knew who, who this guy was 
before this week, or maybe you push him to the back of your mind and he's back up in the news again. So, but look, it, it is an issue, and it probably, it, well, not probably, it definitely needs to be addressed. Uh, a 2014 survey by the International Game Developers Association found that 81% of polled game developers had crunched at some point over the last two years, and 50% felt crunch uh, was expected in their workplace as a normal part of the job. So, like, it's an ingrained kind of part of the video game developer culture, at least on a bigger kind of level. Um, and, like, nothing really can be done about this until, mm. uh, you know, game developers basically unionize. Something mm. of the union variety needs to come up and look after you guys. Interestingly, in Australia, the same union that covers radio journalists and oh. media people actually cover game developers as well. So See, that's fantastic. Look at that. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know, for a lot of people who are going to be working in these smaller studios, maybe 10 people, where you're kind of chipping away and then as that kind of expands out you know you don't know whether things are going to happen and a lot of these things happen so quickly as well that you don't have a time to set in like oh, all right now we need to hire an hr manager or whatever because yeah. you're just trying to make games and you know that's what you're an expert in so yeah i can understand how these things could get to these things but these big companies that are making millions upon millions of dollars you know having a good like way to care for your your employees is a good way to make sure that you have good so work. you can't you can't honestly say Companies making millions and millions of dollars, and then say it's not work. <laughs> like it's like yeah, yeah exactly, is, yeah. exactly. Somebody's I mean, making money off of these guys pushing themselves, so uh, they need to get their fair dues. Yeah, exactly right. Well, look, uh, that's all we've got time for today. So thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni. You can check out all of our episode notes and everything on our website which is www.pixelsift.com.au we've got another event coming up very soon uh we'll be down at the glitch with the perth rocket league for their mini tournament event that's on sunday the 15th of may from 12 p.m you can enter in your team of two to uh win the prizes that are on offer you can find links to that event on our site in the events tab or you can go in the show notes for this episode and we'll shout casting the finals as well so you can watch it on our Twitch channel if you can't make it down uh, Scott if people want to find us on social media where should they head to Gianni people can find us at facebook.com forward slash pixel sift twitter.com forward slash pixel sift twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au and Mitch if people want to listen to our other episodes where should they head to yeah if you don't feel like downloading them you can go to our website it's all there and, um, but if you do want to download them, you can go to iTunes, Pocket Casts, or using the RSS link on the website. And if you're on iTunes or any of your other podcasting systems, we're uh, podcasting systems? Yeah. No, no, I guess, dude, own it. no system. Yep. Yep. Podcasting system. Yep. If you're on podcasting system, uh, please put in a review. Um, yeah, give us a review and share us with your friends. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear more people uh, checking us out. Always. It'd be great. Uh, Colton, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, All Colton. good. Thanks for having me. We will uh, check out a bit of your game. We're going to play a bit of that in a, in a second. Um, time. We can play some of that. <laughs> uh, we can, you can check out Colton's work at bear-tooth.com, uh, Super Salmon Migration, and Arbalist3035. Thanks a lot. Peace out. Bye. If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. 
Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade, and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 